Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. If you've listened before, you'll know that I aim to keep the podcast to around 30 to 40 minutes, but this podcast is actually nearly an hour. So yes, I'm a massive hypocrite, but also I can justify this because my guest in this episode is James Jopling, who is the director of Samaritans in Scotland, and he's brilliant and you should hear what he has to say about things. There is so much good stuff in this one. Two things that I don't think another podcast is covering, and I'm looking at you, Do More Good, Simon Scriver, taking all the fundraising listeners. First of all, what it's like working in one of the nations at a cross-border charity, the opportunities and challenges of that, particularly in Scotland. Secondly, mergers, because James has been involved in two of the biggies. Uh, Firstly, the cancer charities that came together to form Cancer Research UK back in the day, and more recently, the breast cancer charities coming together. We also talk about the incredible volunteer model at Samaritans, which is a little bit mind-blowing. And really importantly, we talk about what James calls being a charity chameleon, moving among different charities and different causes, and particularly the emotional toll of living and breathing the causes that we work for day in, day out. And I have honestly not heard anyone else speak so well about the mental health implications of working in the sector. And, you know, this is a really hot topic at the moment, so I really recommend that you just listen to that bit if you want. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please share on social media, blah, 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 rate on iTunes. Thank you very much. Today I'm meeting with James Joplin, who is Executive Director at Samaritan Scotland. Hi. Hello. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your organisation? Rather scarily for me, I'm just coming up to about 25 years, mostly in charities since I left university. And it was university that brought me first to Scotland. So I did my degree at Stirling, got to the end of a business studies degree with no idea what to do whatsoever. Read a small ad in the the paper which said there was a volunteer role at Oxfam, either in Glasgow or Edinburgh. I didn't really mind which. I applied. I got the post in Edinburgh, moved here, signed on. Oxfam expected you to volunteer five days a week, nine till five. They paid for lunch. Um, So I had as much lunch as I could possibly (laughs) manage. And um, did six months as a volunteer, volunteer coordinator. What I didn't realise at the time was, and I'm sure it's changed now, to stop every graduate in Britain applying to uh, for all the entry-level jobs at Oxfam in Oxford, they had what they called a green list, So you could apply if you'd been a volunteer for a certain length of time, done a certain number of hours or lived within a certain um, geography of Oxford. So I applied for a job and got turned down. But then the next person, someone else left and I was next in line. So I went to work as a direct marketing officer in Oxford uh, for Oxfam. And that was, I think, May 1995. So that was the first time I ever had a paid job in a charity. Wow. I was just finished my first year at secondary school. Great. <laughs> Thanks so that much for that. Good. Yeah. Um, but, I, but, and I've just been so fortunate in my charity career because when I joined Oxfam, uh, and I mean this in a, from fortunate from professional perspective, as will become clear, it was just after the Rwandan crisis in 1994, and it was also just after the first ever two pound a month TV ad. So at Oxfam, that was called fish, so that in shorthand, and that was give a man a fish and he'd feed himself for just a day, give himself oh, yeah. the means to catch his own fish and he'd feed himself and his family for a whole lifetime. And I've seen that in so many briefings to telemarketing agencies, I can still do the script. But it was a 90-second DRTV ad, and the director of fundraising at the time, Peter Ricky Smith, was kind of 
led the work to do that. And, and Oxfam ploughed all its money that it could into that kind of fundraising. Because back in 1995, £2 a month was an exciting thing yeah. and a new yeah. thing. Now, we haven't yet worked out a way to move away from that. Um, and it just kind of reminds me about quite how long ago that was. That must have been quite an interesting time, though, working in the 90s in direct marketing. Yeah, it was. When I joined Oxfam as a direct marketing assistant, and this could be me misremembering, but we didn't each have a computer. We certainly didn't each have emails. When you needed to make corrections on direct marketing packs, you had to mark them up on faxes and then send them back to the DM agency, hoping they could still read it. We're also running threat response press ads for the Rwandan crisis. I was involved a lot in the back end of like all the DRTV call handling and the agencies that were having to deal with that as, as Oxfam developed more and more TV ads based on the success of Fish. And there were some amazing people there at the time. Matthew Sherrington, Mike Wade, Sarah Linus, Peter Vickery-Smith. These kind of figures who went on to amazing other roles in different charities. And it was such a skewed model at the time that... For a period about 18 months in, I was seconded to be the only corporate fundraiser in Oxfam. They cut the program, put the money into direct marketing. And so I was kind of given a little test area to do some corporate fundraising. And the idea that, I don't know how many they have now, but that Oxfam would yeah, only have, have none or yeah. one corporate fundraiser just seemed ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I mean, I can't imagine working out a direct marketing program from a fax machine. Yeah. It feels like we're talking about the olden days. Thanks. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it really does. So what happened after Oxfam? One of the things I had responsibility for in my time as the corporate fundraiser was our Affinity Visa card. So again, not so common now, but a lot of charities had uh, credit cards. There was an initial donation and a trail fee of all the spend. And uh, we worked with the Cooperative Bank on that. And I ended up working for the Cooperative Bank in Manchester on their whole range of Affinity Visa cards. So they had them from... RSPB to the Labour Party to teaching unions to Chelsea Football Club uh, to Greenpeace who were insistent their card had to be PVC free because that was kind of mid late 90s so already they were ahead of the game. So you went corporate? You went yeah to and to Manchester and this was way pre the financial crisis so uh, it felt a very different place. It was a real eye-opener but what it did tell me was you know, the, the measures of their direct mail campaigns were how much balance they got transferred, or totally how much debt they got people into. And that wasn't particularly motivating. So I came back from there to um, end up working back with people from Oxfam, uh, who by then were at Imperial Cancer Research Fund. So I joined the development team there, which was a kind of forerunner of innovation teams. So they had a development function. It was really looking at all the things that were new or developing across the whole fundraising portfolio for Imperial Cancer Research Fund, which was a fascinating time to join. I was working for Sarah Linus, who went on to be exec director of fundraising and comms with Richard Taylor. And it was the pre-merger before it became Cancer Research UK. And then is that when you went to Breakthrough? The merger happened and for a variety of reasons, it felt like a right time to come back to Scotland. So I joined Shelter Scotland as head of fundraising. Came back here in about 2002. Uh, left that organisation for a while um, and ended up coming back as head of external relations. So I, that was the point at which I moved into more of a campaigns, policy and influencing role, which has been integral to where my career has ended up now, being able to make that move. Yeah, I find that shift from fundraising into other bits quite interesting. Like, how do people do it? It feels a bit like if you're a fundraiser, you're kind of pigeonholed as a fundraiser. I think I was fortunate in that I went back into an organisation who knew me already. Uh, they also had a competence-based framework for recruitment. So although that suggests as though that I was favorited, what it meant was if I could display that I had skills and experience in delivering change, affecting positive relationships, um, 
you know, delivering the strategy of the organization. It kind of didn't matter at the time that, you know, I was managing a press function. I'd never written a press release. I was managing a policy function. I'd never written a policy briefing. So in a way, you'd think, well, what were they doing? But I think I had the core <laughs> skills to do those bits of work. And I think it is, a, it is a factor and an advantage of working in Scotland. Because the pool of people is smaller, a lot of organizations have to be a bit more broad-minded about who they'll take. You know, if I, if I went for the job that I got for Shelter Scotland as head of external relations in their main office in London from a fundraising background, I would never have got it. But I was able to make that shift across um, in Scotland, and I'm kind of uh, I'm pretty eternally thankful for that. And then the shelter role eventually took me on to Breakthrough Breast Cancer, where actually I'd applied to be the director in Scotland because I had that fundraising and policy mix, and it was effectively a startup in Scotland because they'd not had an office before. And I got down to the last two, and I didn't get it. But I really liked what the organisation did and how it worked, so I applied for the policy and influencing job, and I didn't get it. (laughs) Doggedly, determinedly, I then ended up taking the fundraising and comms post, which was the only other job in the organisation at the time. So at least one of us was desperate at that point. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I I bought what they did. I liked the idea of, I said, effectively feeling like a startup in Scotland. I worked for someone uh, called Audrey Burt, who I... You know, respected then and hugely now. Subsequent to taking that fundraising and comms role, Audrey, who'd had breast cancer maybe 20 years before, and that was her motivation for joining Breakthrough, was re-diagnosed with breast cancer while working in the charity. So she had to have some extended time off for initial treatment and recovery, and I was given the interim director role for Scotland. Subsequently, she left the organisation, so that's when I full-time took on that director post at Breakthrough, who then merged. It's not me creating these mergers. I think they do happen anyway. Um... Sometime after that is when I joined Samaritans. It's a bit of, bit of resilience and, I don't know, belligerent, is that the right word <laughs> about what you want to achieve, where you want to be? Yeah, I, I think you have to really want it. And I don't think, especially, again, it's a Scottish reflection maybe or a nation's perspective is, there will be a limiting point in your career where, you, where the team you're in charge of can't get any bigger or the resources available won't get any more. And you might have to consider going along or back or forwards or changing sector completely if you want to progress and keep that interest going, mm-hmm. because the same opportunities just aren't going to be there. When I was um, working at Imperial Cancer Research Fund for that year of uh, secondment to be head of DM, for some of it, I was, I was Kevin Wardby's manager. Um, Kevin, who I think has appeared uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> in, one great. Of, in one of your podcasts, Kevin has moved on to one of the sexiest, excitingest, amazing jobs and is a like leader in innovation and many years later I did a workshop with him in Scotland and you know and I remember seeing Wired magazine when he was on the front holding a night uh, a Mac and it was like you know his at the time he was head of radical innovation it wasn't just innovation it was yeah, radical yeah, yeah. now clearly I'm very bitter and jealous <laughs> yeah well we are but he's gone <laughs> he's gone on such an amazing uh, career subsequently but I made life choices and commitments uh, in Scotland, which have been equally, if not more, rewarding. And I guess it's just meant, and I think it does for a lot of people outside the core of the biggest charities, that you just need that flex. Because if, you, if, you know, if you're going to get frustrated or furious that people are doing bigger or you know, more interesting sounding jobs down in London where most UK-wide charities are based, you're just going to spend your whole time frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Is a difficult call to make, though, isn't it? When you sp- when you spent your, I mean, this is kind of where I am at the moment, and moved away from London to Sheffield, and amazing, and it's just brilliant in terms of, you know, it's a place where we want to bring up the children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's very different, and every now and then I think, 
what am I even doing in my loft? Typing some stuff, putting out a podcast. Do you know what I mean? It's a, and then, yeah, you just have to remember not to compare yourself to to other people and yeah. the sacrifices that, that you, you sort of all have to make, I guess. Yeah, and, and the role I have at the moment uh, at Samaritans is the staff uh, complement is me and one other person. And if you were to measure it purely by, by progression or lack of progression since my time at Imperial Cancer Research Fund when I was managing three managers who had substantial budgets, income and expenditure, teams, I mean, there was three or four levels of hierarchy beneath me, and this is when I was like 29, 30. But I wouldn't change where I am now. I really wouldn't. I'm still making a substantial input into something I deeply care about, but just in a different way than you might measure traditionally by a kind of career progression in a kind of in moving from job to job and it getting slightly bigger each time. So tell us a bit about Samaritan Scotland. Well, to do that, I probably need to put Samaritans as a, as a whole in context. Yeah. And of all the charities I've worked for, many of whom will, will talk about the involvement of volunteers, Samaritans is of its volunteers in a way that no other organisation I've ever been involved with uh, is. So Samaritans was started in 1953 uh, by the Reverend Chad Vara, who had to um, conduct the funeral of a young girl who'd taken her own life. She had to be buried outside the grounds of the church because at the time suicide was still a crime. Certainly by the church was viewed poorly. Uh, and he thought there must, there must be a service that we can provide for people who are struggling where people don't have to end up in a situation where they take their own life. So he started the phone line from the crypt of his church. And, and the, the, I don't know if it's actually the real one, but there is still a phone, as in it's the phone that was first used for the first call book to Samaritans and the first helpline that was set up anonymously. The second branch we're actually right next to now, which is the Edinburgh branch um, behind where we're sitting. It was the second place in which people got together and decided to set up a service. We've just passed the 60th anniversary of the first call they ever took. So again, uh, people got together, decided it was something they wanted to do, set up a phone line, which at the time, if you were in Edinburgh, you saw the code, you dialed in, and you would have, to a larger, lesser or greater extent, the same experiences you'd have now. So you'd, you'd speak to someone confidentially and anonymously about whatever it was you were struggling with. And again, in those early days of Samaritans, homosexuality was illegal. So that confidentiality was a critical element in how they positioned the services somewhere you could go and tell people things about your life that you, you had to be certain sure were not going to be shared by anyone else. Mm. So the way we work now is, uh, we're, as the service, is a UK and Ireland-wide. So the organisation of Samaritans actually includes both Ireland and Northern Ireland okay. and every nation of the UK. You dial one number, you get through to the volunteers who've been waiting longest. And last year... That, all told, was about a million hours of people listening. So a million hours of volunteers being there for whoever needs them. I'm not overstating it, but the, the commitment that Samaritans volunteers make is uh, above and beyond anything that I think is probably actually reasonable. So if you train and are selected as a volunteer, the expectation is you do a shift a week and a night shift a month. Night shift might be six hours, a shift is three hours. And once you're trained and up to speed and you've been mentored and supported, you have no idea what the next person is going to say to you. And if you do a shift, the level of demand for our service is such that as soon as you put down the phone to one person, you could pick up the phone to another, or you could turn to your left and you could respond to an email or a text. We're set up as a federated uh, charity. So each branch is its own entity, of which there are 201, 19 in Scotland. And they're on Shetland, Orkney, the Western Isles, the very north coast of Scotland, right down to the borders. Each of those branches is entirely run by volunteers. The volunteers themselves through a selection process, choose the director, who then serves a three-year term. They don't apply for it. You're told that you have been chosen. You then do that for three years, during which time you have to still do your shift a week and night shift a month. 
Each region, which Samaritans is divided into, of which Scotland is one, has a regional director. They are a volunteer. They are operationally responsible in Scotland for 19 branches and all that the volunteers do in those and a support for all the branch directors. They are a volunteer. They have to do their shift a week and night shift a month. They have a more senior volunteer who looks after all those 13 regions and all the volunteers and the whole entity. They still have to do their shift a week and a night shift a month. And the chair of the charity, who is selected by 201 branch directors who are volunteers, is a volunteer, still does a shift a week and a night shift a month. There is this strong, powerful thread from the very top of this organisation down to the branch volunteer behind us in Edinburgh. And at no point in that line are any of those volunteers directly managed by staff. 24,000 volunteers and 160 staff. Yep, something like that. We know the benefits of volunteering are immense to, to people's lives as, sort of as individuals. We know that they make a huge contribution to the organisations that they support. We also know they can be really tricky to yep. work with. Yep. How does it work? On a practical level, mm -hmm. how does this work? Yeah, it works my, by me not managing any of the volunteers. What do you do? <laughs> do you do anything? <laughs> First, we've attacked my age now. <laughs> I know, my... I've got a bit offensive in this one. The role I have and the role my peer exec directors in nations have is quite specific. So my role, as I've described to volunteers and anyone, is about all the elements of suicide prevention, which are not the service. In Scotland last year, and we just got new figures in where the suicide rate from 2017 went up, to 2018 has gone up 15%, 784 deaths by suicide. It's the single biggest cause of death of men under 50 in the UK. It kills more people under 29 in Scotland than all cancers combined. And one of the things that's always struck me if I think about attitudes towards cancer from working in Imperial Cancer Research Fund in the late 90s, um, I think our attitudes and openness about cancer have changed significantly. And our attitudes towards mental health and suicide have changed, but it still feels an issue which is maybe 50 years behind that of how we treat cancer, which used to be called the big C. Mm. Hopefully we don't do that now. But I think suicide is still a topic like that. Yeah. It's riven with stigma. There's concerns we all have about sharing how our mental health in our workplaces with friends, family and colleagues. So that kind of underpins what Samaritans are there to do, which is to reduce the number of deaths by suicide. Now, our service is remarkable, but that's not the only way you can do that. Mm -hmm. And so my role is about our engagement with national and local government, with other partners, like the prison service, where we run a service, with the NHS, with first responders like police, fire uh, and rescue, agencies that have to deal with people in crisis, making sure that a local government suicide is given the priority it warrants as a topic, because actually a lot of the advances we can make and the efforts we can make to reduce suicide rely on what happens locally. And also because suicide itself is a topic, and this could be true of a lot of other charitable cause areas, where actually the biggest input you can have is not within the narrow area of health. For example, the poorest guy in Scotland, then the poorest decile of, of, of the way you assess uh, wealth in the poorest community, his suicide risk is 10 times the wealthiest guy in the wealthiest community. Now, I worked in a breast cancer charity and inequality played a little bit in terms of maybe the number of women who went for screening because actually accessing screening can have some barriers in it, but nothing like how inequality plays across suicide. So if you want to address suicide, you have to address inequality. If you want to address suicide, you have to address how children and young people are encouraged to talk about their emotions and how they engage with them and how they feel about themselves because that resilience which you might develop as a young person is going to stand you in good stead as life develops. Suicide can be about really practical things like access to locations where there might be a risk of suicide and how you can restrict that and working with all the kind of organisations who might be involved in that. 
So suicide as a topic and suicide prevention relies on a lot of relationships with a lot of functions. And one of the reasons my role exists in Scotland is because most of those are devolved to here. So if you want to influence on a lot of those topics and the investment in them, you need to be talking to the Scottish politicians, to Scottish leaders, to the Scottish local authorities, to the Scottish prison service, to Water Safety Scotland. You can't do that job from London if you want to do it properly here. So my role is kind of an amalgam of all of those things and being the front and outward face of the charity as much as anything else to try and reduce that stigma. So as we know that men take their own lives around three times the rate of women, and some of those reasons are to do with how men feel about themselves and how comfortable they are to talk about their own mental health, we have a really important thing to do in encouraging people to talk. We know that individual conversations that people have with Samaritans can change their lives. In a way that, you know, if you and I were talking about breast cancer and we wanted to do something about it in the next 20 minutes, it's very unlikely we're going to come up with some new drug that will treat it. But you and I could walk out of this office and we could bump into someone who maybe we know vaguely who's struggling and the conversation we have with that person could be absolutely critical to the decisions they make about their own life. And because that is true, public affairs and communications and profile building for Samaritans is not just about brand building. It's about that fundamental question about how we can all play a little role in supporting each other when times are tough. So you're actually quite busy. <laughs> well, something, it's interesting because when if I go to another charity particularly and say we just have two staff in Scotland and then I say and we provided 60,000 hours of listening and we have 19 branches and 1,000 volunteers mm-hmm. and we provide outreach across food banks, prisons, schools, in local employers on mental health and well-being, most charities who will drive their activity by staff think I'm much more amazing than I am because they can't fathom how two people can do that. It blows my mind that not only are they running a small charity themselves, they are doing all of that of their own free will. And then every shift, you are confronted with all that life can throw at you. So what support do you give your volunteers to be able to deal with with what's thrown at them? Yeah. Again, the model has changed a fair bit over time. There's a book that's been published by a a former volunteer who kind of went around and and dug out a bit all the kind of the nitty-gritty of Samaritan's history. My own view would be, If the way Samaritans started happened now, no one would allow it. And I mean that in the best possible way, because people took risks, took chances. And this is a published account of a story where two women wanted to start a branch of Samaritans in Kakodi in Fife. The initial contacts they had with people in distress, they had no building, they had no phone lines. So they met them in their car, just off the seafront. And there's a story in the book that there was a female volunteer in the car, and she'd arranged to meet someone who was in distress, who'd been, the details had been forwarded on from another branch in Scotland. And the person got into their car and they were carrying a really large knife. The volunteer said, oh, I hope that's not for me. And the person who got into the car said, no, no, I brought it for me. They talked. She took that person to a psychiatric unit, managed to get them admitted, uh, which wouldn't happen now. And then the book very jauntily goes on to reflect that when the the female volunteer was cleaning out her car six months later, she felt under the car seat and found this massive knife. As far as I know, this story is true. I don't think we would allow services to allow loan volunteers to travel the country and just kind of uh, be arranged to meet people they'd never met before on their own. But the ethos is there. Yeah, the desire of that volunteer to be there for someone who's struggling is absolutely the same. But we are far more protective and supportive of volunteers than then. You'd be relieved to know. (laughs) The model of service now is that you will go into a branch and you will do a shift in a pair. And before even that, you'll have been mentored and supported by the volunteers. So, you know, it's not as if you turn up on a Tuesday and say, can I volunteer? And we went, well, we've got a spot on Friday. Do you want to come? It can be a good number of months. The training is very comprehensive and thorough, prepares you a lot for what calls are going to be like. And some people will decide it's not for them. 
and that's absolutely fine. And there might be other things they can do within the branch. But for people who do decide it's something they can do and that listening is something they think they can excel in, then they'll be supported fully by their branch shift buddy. And it gives them the opportunity if something really difficult is happening to kind of alert the person next to them. There's also then a full debrief at the end of every shift with someone called a shift leader, who's a vol- another more senior volunteer who won't be on site necessarily, but you'll, there'll, there'll be a conversation between the shift leader and the individual volunteers just to talk back through what's gone on. I've listened in shifts. I'm not a Samaritans volunteer myself. The shift I listened into was 11 till 5. And one of the volunteers on that shift was someone who was working a split shift themselves for their day job in a local retailer. So they were going home at 5 a.m., going to sleep for three hours, going to wake up and go and do 9.30 to 12.30 in a shop. Now they've left with six hours of people dealing with a whole variety of things that life has thrown at them. And those calls can be 20, 30 minutes long. I mean, apart from anything else, that person will be exhausted, but they're also churning over a lot of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, the mental load of it. Yeah, and back in the day, again, people didn't discuss with their friends or family they were volunteers for Samaritans. Because you were calling the local branch, some people might be put off calling if they thought they'd know who's going to answer. Now, it works very differently now, but still people kind of hold on to a lot of that stuff. So it's really important we support volunteers themselves to be as mentally well as they can be, and that support comes from their peers within a branch. Like many organisations, we have volunteers who've maybe been there for 30 or 40 years And their cumulative experience and know-how and their own resilience is the core of what will help others who are maybe fresher in role. Should we talk about what we said we were going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) We were going to talk about being a cross-border charity. Yes. Opportunities and challenges of operating in an organisation where you work across different nations. So you've got lots of experience of this. So go. In more senior roles, I've worked cross-border at Shelter, Cancer Research UK, although that was from down south up to here. A breakthrough breast cancer, which is now breast cancer now and shortly becomes something else um, as it merges again and at Samaritans. What I've learned and developed is if you try and control everything that your UK charity does when you're in Scotland, you'll fail. My learning has been you have to be really clear about what things you think you can lead are and are particularly relevant for your nation. What are the things that need to change to achieve your strategic objectives that are different in Scotland. They're not entirely different, they don't sit out with the strategic plan, but what areas of work need that different flavour or approach to make sure they happen? So that could be the legislative environment in your, in your country. So Samaritans recently has paid quite a lot of attention to the issue of social isolation and loneliness. Different governments have different approaches and have taken them at different times. As an organisation, we know a lot of people will call us when they're socially isolated and lonely and have no one else to talk to and are feeling suicidal. And more people will call in that combination than those people are only experiencing suicidal thoughts. And we wanted to make sure that was heard and understood in the approaches that different nations were taking to that issue. So it's really important that by being here, we engage with organisations who are here, politicians who are here and decision makers about what that means in practice. But I think there are relatively few issues that sit within that camp. Then there are other things which you contribute to. So UKWide charities will have overarching campaigns about their brand, about fundraising, about calls to action. Sometimes it can be frustrating if you don't feel they're Scottish enough, but sometimes I think you just have to live with the fact that you're part of a UK organisation and that gives you lots of strengths as well. Shelter, when I was in charge of direct marketing, as a test of that, we took the whole cash file and split them in two. We sent half of the file, the most Scottish piece of direct mail we could produce. It stank of iron brew. There was, there was a saltire on the front. No, some of these things... <laughs> The creative and the concept was all about a Scottish case, a Scottish story. It was signed by the Scottish director. It made clear the money was going to be spent only in Scotland. The other half got 
the bog standard direct mail cash pack. Now, based on the economies of scale alone, it had to out, the Scottish pack had to outperform the English one by about seven times to pay off. It barely beat it. Really? Yeah. Because an existing cash file of donors to shelter care about bad housing, homelessness, children who are struggling, and making sure those things are fixed. Scotland is not critical in a donor's mind, I don't think always, to all of those issues. Contrast that against Imperial Cancer Research Fund. Back in the day when I was there, their control pack for cash appeal was called local appeal. So they would laser into the top line of the pack. Do you want to help people with cancer in? Yeah. <laughs> and then put the name of the nearest town in which you lived. Yeah. Now, unless you live in London or a few other places, there were not scientists at the end of your street doing that work. <laughs> But people did want to know that people local to them would benefit. Now, somewhere between local and the mission of your charity sits nation. It is important in some of the messaging. It is important if you want to affect change from policy and campaigning basis. I don't think it's utterly critical to everything you ever say. Most donors and supporters want the thing to change, the issue to change. If it has to change a little bit more differently in Scotland or in a different time, great. But not everything does. And so my last category, and when I'm thinking about how to work in Scotland, which is some things you lead, some things you contribute to, is which things you just let happen. Which things are just what you do, and you're not gonna, you're gonna try and get as least grumpy about them as possible if you read it, and it doesn't quite have the Scottish flavour or quote or inference in it, because you're probably gonna have far fewer staff, and you need to devote your efforts to the big chunky things which are different and make sure they, they change. I was recently working with a health charity that has the Scottish arm. And when I was speaking with Scottish colleagues there, they were saying that there's this Scottish charity that talks a lot about every penny raised in Scotland is spent in Scotland. And this was seen to be quite problematic in terms of the income that they felt they would be able to raise in Scotland. What are your thoughts on that? Well, and there's a charity, uh, I'm not sure it's still in their windows, that's a Scottish charity who in the windows of their charity shops, very, until recently, did say what's raised in Scotland is spent in Scotland. But it's probably the same charity. Yeah, could be. <laughs> um, I had this conversation with, uh, a while ago with someone uh, in a very senior role in uh, Greenpeace who was saying, well, imagine if Greenpeace or anyone else in England had any campaigns which said what's raised in England is spent in England. Mm. How would that play? <laughs> I think the answer is probably not very well. It played to you know, uncomfortable feelings of nationalism in a way which I think most charities would avoid. Different supporters, though. Yeah. Different mindset. Yes, but I think that there's something in there about nation. And when I was at Breakthrough Breast Cancer, we did some research with, with donors at a variety of levels, some in-depth in qualitative research about where Scotland sat for them. Now, Breakthrough Breast Cancer was, and Breast Cancer now still is, um, uh, predominantly a research charity. Now, for someone who's lost their mum or sister or wife, to breast cancer. There are two things at play there, I think. One is you want to make sure no one else dies in the same way. You want to make sure that the research is the best it could be and leads to treatments happening quickly. Separate to that, I think sometimes you might want to think that research is being done in Scotland. But actually, if you boil, if you boil that down, is that the most important thing about the mission of that organisation? The most amazing research in breast cancer will be happening in the States, in Japan, in Korea, in London. You want those treatments to patients uh, as quickly as possible. Now, where that does play out in a nation's perspective is the fact that in Scotland and England, there are different processes for approving drugs to be used in the NHS. So it comes more down to health policy. Yeah, so if you want to affect change and make sure that that, that next person in Scotland can get access to that drug, 
then you need to engage different decision makers, run a different campaign at a different time about a different product. And, you know, most ways I can think of it is, it is pretty ridiculous that you can have a drug available in one country in the UK and not in another. Because if you're a patient and know that to be true, that is not going to make sense to you. But we've devolved governments and we've devolved authority for good reason. And along with that comes that kind of challenge. And if you're a UK-wide charity, you're not devoting resources to understanding that and influencing that, then you're only serving the people in England. And that's not, if your remit is UK-wide, then you're, you're letting someone down by doing that. What's going on with Brexit? <laughs> what that's I mean, not, what I mean to ask is, um, is Brexit influencing your work? Because obviously Scotland are like, what are you doing down there? <laughs> um, well, yes, yeah, Scotland voted Remain. Uh, but Scotland, of course, in a different way, didn't vote Remain because it wasn't a Scottish vote. But the people of Scotland, proportionally. I was in uh, Breakthrough Breast Cancer when the Scottish independence referendum happened. And so, understandably, it was one of the few times when a Scottish-specific issue actually broke through onto the main board of trustees. Breakthrough, like many other Scottish arms of UK charities, went through a lengthy process of writing lots and lots of papers about how to prepare for such a thing. Now, even if independence had happened, the day after, it would not have led to every UK-wide charity having to hive off its Scottish operations into an entirely different entity. The same point applies as I made earlier in that the cause is still the same and the biggest and best effort you can make to reduce or remove or stop that thing from happening is the most important thing you should be doing. I think the same applies for Brexit. We will find a way to do the things that charities need to do to affect change. It may or may not lead indirectly to another independence referendum in Scotland and we'll have to wait and see. But I still think there are Scottish-only charities doing fantastic work. There are UK-wide charities with Scottish arms doing fantastic work. And, you know, we're, we're bright enough to work our way past it. I wanted to talk a little bit about fundraising, but mm. we were also going to talk about this notion of Murgers. being a oh. charity chameleon. Yeah, I would like to wear that. What did you say? Burgers. Burgers. I was saying oh, mergers. mergers. But... Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's talk about mergers first, because... Yeah, you seem to seem to work somewhere. <laughs> they have Bring me in, and they will happen. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I had a bit of an experience of mergers, but we weren't allowed to call it a merger when ah. I was at RNIB. Yes, and RNIB mm-hmm. um, didn't merge with a lot of charities. Excellent. They became. It was called an association. See, I don't even know how to articulate mm-hmm. it, but it was a merger. Everybody felt it was a merger. Yeah. So Action for Blind People, for example, yep. became part of the RNIB group. I still don't know what that means. Mm. I just remember it causing a few issues, particularly around direct marketing databases, for example. But on a strategic level, it was like, it's going to be wonderful. And, you know, consolidating all our back office savings and efficiency. But then on the ground, we were all like, what do we do? So, yeah, what's your experience? Well, the first one I was part of, I was head of direct marketing at Imperial Cancer Research Fund when we learned that we were going to merge with Cancer Research Campaign to become what what we now know as Cancer Research UK. Now, I wasn't at a senior enough level to be involved in the machinations to get to that point. Um, But I was involved in some campaigns which were directly about trying to evidence why we were different to Cancer Research Campaign just before they announced that we were going to merge. Brilliant. Yeah. So a lot of the the savings they could attribute, and I think the headlines at the time were like £4 million worth of saving, a personal view would be that was the money saved from not each charity doing campaigns to prove they were different from the other one. So <laughs> that is as valuable a contribution as anything. From a non-scientific perspective, the, the differences between the two were marginal. They'd had different funding models and how they supported researchers. The core ask wasn't that different at all. As head of direct marketing, I had to work with cancer, my counterpart, Cancer Research Campaign, to look at one of the things you just mentioned about databases. 
the number won't be right, but something in the high tens of thousands or even low hundreds of thousands, we found people who were active donors to both charities. Mm. Now, that time, I think that meant you'd be getting about 23 cash appeals a year, including reminders. Now, those are people who were active cash donors for both Cancer Research Campaign and Imperial Cancer Research Fund. And a real worry at the time was actually if we merge, there's sudden realisation from those people that they're only actually going to get as few as 11 cash appeals and uh, you know, cumulatively lose money. But what it also showed was those people were not discriminate in their giving. Given the size of the organisations, uh, uh, and hindsight is probably cheating me, they happen remarkably quickly. <laughs> I mean, it became Cancer Research UK in not that long a period of time at all. Two massive entities. Um, you know, and I think the, the evidence is strong for like their income increased something like fourfold from that time of the two individual charities. So everything about that says it was entirely the right thing to do. Think of someone working in them, and this is true across both. They feel like things you can't argue against, even if you thought there was a good reason to. Because by the time you're told as a staff member, that means trustees have got on board and pretty much committed to it. So if you were to put your hand up and say, I'm not sure this is going to work for this area or this area, you know, it's got its own momentum behind it. Entirely for personal reasons, subsequent to that merger, I, I decided to move on. And the personal reasons were it felt like I was a tiny cog in then an enormous machine, which is now delivering, I don't even know, 600, 700 million pounds worth of voluntary income, funding two thirds of all the cancer research in Britain. Does a remarkable thing, but it's also its scale is overwhelming in some ways. If you're seeing, if you want to find your role and place within it, I think in that instance, it, it's about finding some space and time for people to be able to voice when they're not sure. But you, you feel in the face of all the evidence and, and insight that brighter and better people have made that you can't really make that argument. Mm. The second time around, I was at Breakthrough Breast Cancer and there would be discussions and questions endlessly about why, at the time, any of the three major breast cancer research charities hadn't merged. You know, this commonly used term about the pink fog, it then morphed into pink washing, which is maybe what some commercial organisations were accused of, which is when they would set up charitable partnerships, pay a small amount of money to a breast cancer charity and turn a thing pink. But you had, at the time, you had Breakthrough Breast Cancer, Breast Cancer Campaign, and breast cancer care. At the time, I was director in Scotland when the process was begun at, to bring the two research charities together under one banner. And again, looking back on it, it made absolute sense. I think from a process perspective, and I think it's, it's a sh many sadnesses about there not being more charity mergers. One of them is we don't have enough shared experience about how to make them work, mm -hmm. as in the process. In the one at, to form breast cancer now, the chief exec was announced last. Teams were formed with directors from a mixture across the two charities while they're still in separate sites. And then, might not be right, but maybe like two weeks or 10 days ahead of moving into one office, they announced who the new chief exec was going to be. And at that point, it could have been either of the chief execs from mm -hmm. the separate charities. At the time, it's Chris Askew and uh, Delith Morgan. Uh, Delith was successful, Chris wasn't. I wasn't in the room because I was in Scotland. Uh, but I was, you know, it meant the chair of one charity walked into the office, to their offices and said, and it's your chief exec, and the other chair of the, the other charity walked into their office and said, it's not yours. And then 10 days later, put all those staff in a room and, you know, hope for the best. Now, again, all of those people were utterly committed to the end goal of that new entity, but it made it pretty challenging in those first few weeks mm -hmm. while everything settled and that the challenges like which team you were from or which team you were of. I think there's way too many cancer charities, way too many children's charities, way too many international development organisations but when 
Charity trustees are primarily tasked to hold the best interests of their charity at heart. It is really hard for them to step outside that and go, well, how are the best interests of this charity served by merging with another one? It's, a, it's an almost impossible ask of trustees, I think, which is why I think there are so few sizable charity mergers. Mm. And the personal, personal pressures and the personal toll of being involved in that, for example, you mentioned two execs being in it until the yep. last minute yep. and then... You know, if you're not successful yeah. as a result of that, so um, I mean, it, it could be a blessing in disguise, of course. Like, couldn't it? But also, you know, I mean, even if you've just gone for a job and you don't get it, you feel a bit like, mm. yeah. yeah. And although we were working effectively together as two two groups of directors, there were two people in charge of the process to get us to that formation, and then there was only one subsequently. Mm-hmm. And Chris has gone on to remarkable success at mm-hmm. Diabetes UK. Things worked out well, and Delith Morgan has done a great job at Breast Cancer Now. And Breast Cancer Now are now merging with um, Breast Cancer Care. So there's a, a second stage of that consolidation uh, amongst breast cancer charities, which again, I think is only a good thing to be welcomed because, you know, if there is such a thing as a pink fog, it's going to help cut through it. Because if, yeah. you, if you've had breast cancer or you care about someone who has, then there'll be one organisation who are there for you. And, and that makes uh, total sense. The charity chameleon. <laughs> okay. Is that you? Yeah. Is that your name? Should we call you the charity chameleon? I do. Um, so you wrote this blog, yeah. which was great, on working for various different causes. Yeah. And the, I guess the kind of personal effect they had on you. Yeah. And reflecting back on that. Yes, it's true. Um, I think what I was reflecting on, and it, it was prompted by a particular thing uh, a couple of years ago, which is I went to the funeral of a former trustee of Breakthrough Breast Cancer, a woman called Sarah Illingworth, who was latterly in a career quite heavily involved in... Um, charity recruitment, but also had worked in jobs in, in the sector. And she'd had secondary breast cancer when she'd been a trustee at Breakthrough. I'd left, and then the merge happened, and then subsequently she died. And I went back for her funeral, because we, it's an odd story. But um, because of my cross-border charity uh, requirements, I'm on a train quite a lot from uh, Edinburgh to London. And at one point I took a photograph of the bridge at um, Berwick-upon-Tweed and tweeted it because when you're on a train for four and a half hours, you've got very little else to do. And Sarah Lingworth replied and said that she was a massive fan of bridges, which I thought was interesting. So, <laughs> I, so every time I went on that train route, I would tweet and I would at Sarah Lingworth. And then when I travelled in other places, I would take photographs of bridges and send them to Sarah. So for the last 18 months of her life, uh, our communication was mainly about bridge photos. And so we'd, we'd had this really odd connection continuing, and I knew she was very ill. And I went to a funeral, and most of the people I'd used to work with were from Breakthrough were there, and most of the key supporters were there, people who'd lost relatives and had been like amazing fundraisers. And their lives hadn't changed since then. Certainly the fundraisers, the people who'd lost relatives to breast cancer, whereas I'd, I'd left them, and they'd known me as the director for Scotland. But I was then working in a, a charity prevent suicide. But I was cast back into this. And, and firstly, there's that, that odd thing when you meet people who one who's previously your boss and your colleagues and you've all got different jobs and you're not quite sure who you are to each other. Yeah, yeah. Are you still my boss even though we're in a church? <laughs> yeah. No, I feel uh, as respectful as I would be normally. But then when everyone else spoke to me, their reference point was where they were in their breast cancer journey. And my insight into breast cancer had been formed entirely by working there. Now, I didn't switch off every connection that I had to that cause and those people when I left. And I'd been to funerals of other supporters while I'd been there, which had been harrowing and difficult experiences. And I just felt this odd jolt about what I was meant to feel about it then. I, I've kept up regular gifts for every charity I've worked in as some kind of, I don't know, 
<laughs> guilt that I, you know, I'd moved to something else from international development to homelessness to cancer to suicide. But I, when I wrote the blog, it was as much about wondering how much I could continue to do that. My mum is 76 and she still works for LV Insurance as their longest employee. So that gives me near close to 30 years more work if I wanted it, if I judge myself by her standards. So I'm not even halfway. I, I wonder, those of us in the charity sector who imagine having careers in it for most of our lives, how much can we do that? How much can we keep engaging and caring and crying and wanting to change stuff passionately and then for whatever reason, moving on to something else and doing the same thing? Because we're not machines. And I don't think, and it's very navel-gazing, but I don't think we give each other enough time and space to explore and understand what that feels like. What it feels like in a job. What it felt like six months ago for me to meet a woman who I was expecting to meet as a case study, which is a horrific phrase, mm -hmm. and actually wanted me to tell her why her husband had killed himself. I'm not equipped in this job to know the answer to that question, and she was meeting a charity working in suicide so that I could answer that. And I've met women, or, and, and husbands particularly, who want to know why breast cancer took the, the person they love the most. And I don't know the answer to that either. Mm. And I think given those are the situations we can end up in as employees of charities, and we're carrying that from place to place, I, I don't think we're spending nearly enough time on our own health and well-being to mean that we can be the best we can as we continue that journey. Where did you think, OK, so these are the things that I need to do to make sure that me personally, that I'm supported? I think we're a long way from getting it right. If I think about it within the media function of a charity, and I mentioned the phrase case studies, which is on my current hit list of phrases I, I hate the most, that is a person who has come to your organisation because something, my work experience is horrible has happened and they, they want to do something differently or live something in a different way. And if you're a 26-year-old media officer, and given the job of speaking to that person on the phone to get their story so you can put it in the next direct mail pack, we're being, firstly, disrespectful to the person we're speaking to, and secondly, to an extent, irresponsible in the way we're supporting our colleagues in what is an incredibly exposing situation. Mm -hmm. And I felt that more at Samaritans than anywhere else, because a death by suicide is often the death out of time. It's an unexpected death. It's a death that leaves those closest to the person who died with so many questions that will never be answered. And they are looking for those answers a week, a month, a year, a decade after. And they can be left with anger, uh, guilt, shame, rejection, fundamental um, effects on the rest of their life. And we can, if we don't do it properly, go careering in, uh, with, with good intentions, but, but uh, you know, certainly not make things any better. And I think we need to think really hard about when we're putting ourselves in those situations about how well we're doing it. And I think we need to think really hard about how much we're allowing ourselves um, the space and time to talk about those things afterwards. Because one of the things that I've experienced at Samaritans, um, and, and we're getting a lot better at dealing with, is... I work for Samaritans. I, I, I made a choice not to train to be a Samaritan as well because I wasn't sure 
I could allow this topic to take up that much of my life. And it's not, it really isn't, I don't care. It's just the idea of doing it in the daytime as a job and trying to create some space is challenging. The idea of doing it in my own time and engaging with people directly was more than I thought I could manage. But I still have to hear really difficult and challenging stories from people uh, all the time and people whose job involves them dealing very directly with traumatic experiences. And those things can mount up. And I think we need to find better ways to support ourselves and allow ourselves to acknowledge that the jobs we have in charities can be really taxing of themselves. But I think we tend to take this really stoic approach and create ways to create distance so that that doesn't happen. Mm. But some of the most powerful uh, and important and uh, affecting experiences I've ever had in charities have been actually when that those two worlds have collided, but we need to do that with such care. When, when Audrey Burt, my previous director at Breakthrough Breast Cancer, was re-diagnosed with breast cancer, and suddenly we had to deal with that topic affecting someone very close to us, it burst the bubble. And we found it really hard. When Sarah Linus at Imperial Cancer Research Fund, her husband was diagnosed with a very uh, aggressive brain tumour, and he lived long enough to see the birth of their third child, but not much longer than that. And suddenly, from dealing with the topic of cancer as a direct mail pack concept, we were dealing with it relating to the bereavement of, of one of our colleagues. And I think those shocking moments in our charity life can, can stay with us. And it's really important that they do. But I don't know what the best ways are to protect ourselves from the worst of that. Because people will assume, as they do for me now at Samaritans, that I mean, because I work here, I am one. And I'm, I come with all those skills and I'm no more a Samaritan than I am a cancer research scientist or a counsellor or someone who can provide housing for someone who's struggling. What everything I do is about trying to make sure those things can happen, but I'm not the person who can affect them myself. But sometimes those interactions you can have, uh, you can end up feeling that that's, that's where someone has, has got to with you and you've maybe let them down or failed them if you haven't been able to help. It feels like the, the interactions that you've had, potentially because of the causes that you've worked on and how senior you've been in those roles, have meant that you have had more interaction with people who have been at really difficult points in their lives than perhaps other people would have. But reflecting on what you've just said, it feels like they have put a different angle on how you might approach talking about these things yeah. and how you engage with people. And although it feels like it's been really difficult for you personally, yeah. it's probably to the benefit of the people who are seeking support from your organisation, organisations. Yeah. I really, really hope so. It's put an exa a brief example in my mind of, of, of another of an experience which maybe captures this. Breakthrough Breast Cancer was formed by, off the back of a campaign called the Thousand Man Challenge, which uh, in its early, in, I think it's early 1990s it formed. And the idea was that for as many women as possible to go out raise a thousand pounds. If they raised a thousand pounds, they could set up the first dedicated breast cancer research lab. I was at a breakthrough when the Thousand Man Challenge continued. And one of the things that they did every couple of years was they would um, unveil a new challenges wall at the, the, the main research centre in London. And on those were, were names nominated by people who'd raised a thousand pounds as part of this same um, product. Uh, and those names could be their own or someone who's died or had breast cancer. And so we were setting up to do this uh, day, which means the lab shuts down, they clean it down, it's at a weekend. Hundreds of people come from around the country 
and there's a kind of perspex wall with like tiny names on them. Uh, and I, because I can go on a bit and chat, was really keen to do the bit by the wall. And they would stop off, groups in like 10 or 15 people would stop off and uh, they'd be going off subsequently to meet scientists. But the wall was the thing for a lot of people. And we had a ribbon that went across and we had Velcro in the middle of the ribbon that was behind a, um, a bow. Um, and a group of people would come up and I'd say a bit about the wall and the importance of the names on it. And then um, we'd, we'd give scissors to someone there to cut the ribbon. That's why there was Velcro. They'd unveil the wall. They'd take some time, take some photographs of those names and then move on. We'd then reattach the ribbon and the next group of people would come. And I did that 13 times that day. And yeah, you, you end up speaking to people who've, whose names are there of their mum or sister or wife. And when I wasn't that senior, particularly at that point, but I'd chosen to do it. And it, it, for all of us in that team, I think at the end of the day, we realised how difficult that had been for us, but absolutely knowing we were the least important people in that whole day. And every time we unveiled that wall and every time someone found a name on it, that was why they'd raised money and that was why they cared and that was why they were there. But yeah, just those kind of examples where you're, where you're exposed so directly to... Um, why people are doing the things they do and why they support the cause they support can be tough. I, I want to bring the best of that care and compassion that hopefully I've managed to share with those people to other jobs in the future. But yeah, I think we need to all think harder about how we can make sure we're there for each other so that we can do that in the best way possible. Seems a bit trite going on to focus <laughs> And if you want, that. I don't mind at all. Be delighted. I thought my battery might run out actually, but that's why I keep on going. you can suggest oh quite God. how long this has gone on. <laughs> No, Sorry. So, I was sort of interested to know what your income mix looked like for mm -hmm. Scotland. And we've talked a bit about a locality and how that works for direct marketing. Yeah. Your corporate partners. So yeah. what we were talking about, um, sort of locality, national stuff. I yeah. noticed that the Lord Mayor's Appeal and PwC came up with this. Well, they didn't come up with it. Collaboratively developed this well-being at work yes. approach. I thought it was interesting that it used to be called well-being in the city. Yes. <laughs> I think that's an example. Well that's spotted. a perfect example of, of um, mm -hmm. oh, let's not make it quite so London-centric. Yeah. So what I love about the corporate partnerships from what I can see is that it's absolutely embedded in what the organisation is, is about. Yes. It's this sort of um, approach to supporting people with their well-being within businesses. Mm -hmm. I've been at Samaritans for four years, and I think in that time... The attitudes of major employers towards mental health and well-being has changed dramatically. I'm going tomorrow to do a talk at um, Royal Bank of Scotland at their headquarters on the outskirts of Edinburgh to one of their technology teams about emotional health and well-being, and we'll touch on the subject of suicide. And it's the technology team, and I've been told they're you know, largely going to be male, and suicide is something that takes the lives of so many more men than women, and it takes the takes the lives of men in their middle years, as we call it, from 45 to 54 and a bit younger in Scotland. So it's a really important group of people to be talking to about things like the fact that one in four of us will experience suicidal thoughts, but that does not mean we're going to go on and take our own life. Now, those are challenging topics for workplaces, and I think the role that Samaritans can play there and does play there in terms of some of our training is taking the core of what we're brilliant at, which is listening and helping employers understand how to apply that. Because if you think about some of your worst ever bosses, often they might be the ones who never listened. So the core skill we have as everything we are as a service, which is about listening, 
is actually a brilliant skill set to have in terms of your own personal career. So I guess what we're trying to do as Samaritans is utilize that, provide some core skills which will enable us all to be better at supporting colleagues uh, when they might be struggling, and reduce a bit of that stigma about talking about mental health. And an example I often use when, when talking to a workplace is around, you know, if you were with your manager and you said, I'm struggling, is there assumption that, that you mean with that project? Or is there assumption a bit more broad and thinking, well, actually, I need to ask them about why they might be struggling. And that might be to do with a relationship breakdown or some family issues or something unrelated to their job to do with a friend. And we're in work a lot. And we bring these things in whether we like it or not. And I think if we can work out better ways from our skills to support employers to be better at doing that themselves, then I think there's something incredibly mutually beneficial there. All right, brilliant. Should we leave it there? Yeah. Um, thank you very much. It's all right. As a treat, I've searched Edinburgh and come empty-handed <laughs> for fresh. a Fry's orange cream. Mm. You're not They're only available in very niche independent retailers. So oh, I had to Google, I Googled yeah. it when I was oh. nearly here, being like, I've been in so many shops. Oh, that's really sweet of you, don't and, you? Um, yeah, fine. Waitrose and Amazon. Oh, yeah, they're all, all really small independent news agencies who still buy them off the back of a lorry. Yeah. B&M. B&M Bargains. Oh, pack of three for a pound. So, key learnings from this chat. I think the first one, obviously, is that if you're a fan of Fry's Orange Creams, you need to get down B&M Bargains because you can get three for a quid. Secondly, mergers. If you're involved with mergers at a really, really senior level, i.e. if you can actually make a difference to how they are implemented, take your time with your staff and volunteer engagement and try to consider the emotional implications of more than one person going for one role, for example, because obviously that's going to be really tough. Thirdly, cross-border charities. So James makes this sound really straightforward, which I think is probably the result of being a gifted communicator, but we actually know it's really tricky in reality. I think James's approach seems to be considering things across three categories, if you like. So what do you lead on? What do you contribute to? And what do you just let happen? I think that's a really nice, simple way of considering things. Finally, the charity chameleon. I'm still mulling this over, to be honest, but there are some really obvious potential crunch points for our staff and volunteers. So when we're meeting clients or service users, however you refer to people, and when we're gathering their stories, and I mean that in the broadest sense, not just from a fundraising perspective, it's really important that we think about the impact on us as individuals and how we manage that on a personal and professional level. But a really important factor is that we're emotionally resilient enough and have the skills or tools to be able to communicate with people, to be able to support them and essentially provide the best experience of your organisation because that's exactly what people need if they're coming to you. I hope that you enjoyed listening. If you did, I'd love to hear from you and please share it. If you didn't, keep quiet, yeah? Yeah.